0: Human beings are hardwired to ruminate, and all too often it's on negative thoughts. We chew away obsessively on upsetting events in our past, or we catastrophize about things that might happen in future. But it can spin us into depression, anxiety, and even addictive rituals. Luckily, though, over the centuries, some cultures have been tinkering away at this particular part of the human condition trying to find ways of quietening our minds. They've come up with some clever ways to keep us on the emotional straight and narrow. Concentration meditation, mindfulness practice, or contemplative movement like yoga. Boosting our emotional well-being with these techniques is a bit like good oral hygiene. If we want to take care of our teeth, we need to brush and floss and visit the dentist regularly. But every now and then, we might need something a bit more drastic, like a root canal. That's where a psychedelic session can come in. As some of the masters of consciousness studies have learned over the decades, psychedelic therapy sessions don't replace the daily flossing and brushing that we need for good emotional hygiene, but they can be a really good add-on. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic therapy as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, you can catch up via the website, psychonauts.coza, or iTunes, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. The names and details of some of the people who appear in the series have been changed to protect their privacy. I'm science writer Leonie Jubeir coming to you from Cape Town, South Africa, and this is Episode 7, The Octopus's Garden. My friend Casper is obsessed with octopuses. Give him a gap and he will start rabbiting on about their two eyes, their three hearts, and and their eight suckered arms, each of which can think for itself. He'll grin as he tells you how these creatures run across the seafloor with coconut shells stuffed in their armpits in case they need a quick suit of armour to avoid any hostiles. He'll tell you how they can screw the lid off a glass jar to get at food, how good they are at problem-solving, that they're the only invertebrates known to use tools. How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh, he'll ask, his eyes glittering. Ten tickles, he'll say. Sometime last year, we were staring out over the chilly West Coast Ocean in the late summer. The sun was about to sting the watery horizon, and he explained to me how you don't go looking for octopuses. If you're in a tidal pool and you know there's an octopus there, you'll never find it if you go looking for it, he tells me. They're too well camouflaged. They can hide right there in plain sight, changing their colour in a flash to mimic their surroundings. No, he says. If you want to find an octopus, you need to soften your gaze. You need to wait for the creature to slip into sight from the edge of your vision. That's when you'll see it. This was a bit of a revelation. At the time, I was wrestling with some of my own shape-shifting creatures. I'd been trying to get a new book project off the ground for about two years, and it just wasn't getting anywhere. I needed funding and an institutional home for the project, but it was just one slammed door after the next. Eventually, the project washed up on the shores of a local university, where I tried to bring it to life through a PhD process. Over the months, the book proposal grew into a weighty 12,000-word tome but it was too much of a square peg to fit into the round hole of academia. It got shunted between four different departments over the months, as I hoped to win the heart of one potential supervisor after the next. With each move came another rewrite, but this baby of mine just didn't belong. I became more crestfallen with each failed attempt. The problem wasn't so much with my stillborn book, and it wasn't just that no one seemed to want my idea The issue was that it felt as though they were rejecting me. All of those old self-doubts about my worth and competence started turning over in my head. Was the idea really that weak? Had I lost my touch? Maybe I'd peaked. Maybe my career as a science writer was over and this was the beginning of a decline into irrelevance. Maybe I'd never been terribly good in the first place. Who was I to even think I was good at this job, the conceit of it? Maybe it was time to accept that I'm a pretty useless writer and just hang up my pen. The self-loathing grew bigger and uglier with each day. Confronting the blank page on my computer became more torturous, with that bloody cursor blinking at me expectantly. And then, the octopus story. Standing near the edge of the surf, listening to Casper telling me about feeding snacks to an eight-limbed creature in one of his favourite tidal pools, It occurred to me that maybe a way to understand this crippling self doubt was to stop squaring up against myself. Rather than hunting for a solution, maybe I should soften my gaze a bit. Maybe I should sit quietly and wait to see what creatures might come floating up from my subconscious. This kind of rumination is typically human. In fact, there's an evolutionary reason why we tend towards thinking obsessively about the negative. It's got to do with how we problem-solve our way through a complex and uncertain world. It can help us prepare for the worst, but it tends to make us miserable. Obsessing about things in our past tends to make us depressed. Obsessing about things in our future spins us into anxiety. There's a TEDx talk online by psychologist Dr. Guy Winch who explains how life events like failure can distort our perceptions. He says we tend to have a default set of feelings and beliefs that we revert to whenever we encounter setbacks, like the ones I'd faced when I couldn't get my book project off the ground. It's natural to feel demoralized and defeated when we fail. But once those ideas get traction, it can be hard to convince ourselves that anything else is true. Obsessing on these kinds of negative thoughts can lead to clinical depression, alcoholism and other addictive behaviours, eating disorders, even heart disease, he says. The more time and energy we give our rumination, the harder it is to break the bad habits that surround them. As my book project stumbled onwards, never quite taking flight, I got trapped in a spiral of self-doubt about my ability and wider existential questions about my self-worth. The good news, though, is that human beings have been wrangling with this particular quirk of the human condition for centuries. The Buddhists in particular seem to have cracked it. They've worked out a whole lot of clever mental exercises that harness what modern scientists now refer to as the plasticity of the brain, so we can train ourselves away from unhelpful habits and into healthy ones. Through the course of our lives we face a barrage of stimulation which, If we're not careful, can trigger unconscious reactions. Someone cuts you off in the traffic and you fly into a rage. Your partner says something that sounds a bit critical and you slip into a sulk. You're trapped at your desk all day, so you decompress over a bottle of wine each night. Trigger reaction, trigger reaction, trigger reaction. Until parts of our lives become a bitter orchard of angry outbursts, festering moods, panic attacks, distracting ourselves with booze or binge-watching TV series or tinkering on Facebook. The more we practice this behavior, the stronger these habits become. A psychologist once helped me understand the process of someone spiraling into addiction. No one starts out wanting to be a homeless addict who's crippled by his craving for alcohol. He becomes that after a tyranny of small decisions that slowly spiral out of control. And that's how most bad habits take hold of our lives. Okay, it's a bit more complex than that, and I'll come back to this later. But the point for now is that just as a tyranny of small decisions can spin someone into self destructive habits, the same can be done for spinning us into useful habits. Now, the Buddhists have come up with some useful mental exercises that help slow or stop this reactivity. These are relatively simple interventions that build a pause into a situation and allow us just enough time to slow down and consider a response. Instead of being on the inside of the washing machine, being tumbled about by circumstance, we sit on the outside of it for a few moments and observe the situation, so we can decide what to do. A simple mental exercise like mindful awareness is a great start. Concentration practice, where you sit quietly for a few minutes each day and just focus on your breath, or, say, the mental image of a candle flame. A mantra meditation where you repeat a simple phrase over and over, or count your breath, much like counting sheep, so you can distract your brain from galloping off into rumination. There are dozens of ways of quietening our overactive, obsessing minds and reactive nervous systems. But how does all of this tie in with psychedelics, you're probably asking? Well, if you put a seasoned meditator into an MRI machine and scan her brain during one of those concentration practices, the patterns you'll see in her brain activity will be strikingly similar to those of someone on a psychedelic trip. This is a rather startling discovery, which was made quite recently. On one side of the Atlantic, some researchers from Yale had been studying the brains of people in meditation processes using MRI scans. A few years later, on the other side of the Atlantic, researchers at Imperial College London did similar scans with volunteers who were tripping on LSD or psilocybin, the hallucinogenic compound found in certain kinds of mushrooms. When these researchers stumbled on each other's work and compared notes, they found that the scans showed specific changes in brain function with the people in both study groups, a part of the brain that's called the default mode network. The default mode network is a relatively new discovery in the world of neuroscience, but it's the central character to the science of psychedelic therapy. And this is roughly how it works. When you and I are just hanging about with no specific task or activity to keep our concentration focused and busy, our brains slip into a resting state. You'll know precisely what I mean. It's that idling state where our mind wanders off into daydream or mulls over things, slipping into the future or drifting back through the memory banks of our past. It ruminates. The default mode network is also associated with our ego, that part of ourselves that identifies each of us as an individual, encased in the shell that is our body. It's what allows me to understand that I'm not the same as the sofa in the lounge, or the cat snoozing on the armrest of the sofa. Young kids usually don't have a strong sense of ego yet, The older we get, the more the I becomes aware of itself and how it relates to the world. When the default mode network engages gear, it's identifying with the me in that state. I'm not thinking about the notion of just, say, anger, but what makes me, Leonie, angry. Researchers describe this default mode network as being like the air traffic controller in our brains, coordinating how different parts of the brain speak to each other and how our thoughts get processed. An MRI scan on a brain in its resting state shows greater blood flow and oxygen use in this part of our brain. This kind of processing is a way for the brain to be more efficient as it copes with a barrage of sensory inputs. The problem is that this almost oversimplification of data processing tends to lock us into ever more rigid, stubborn ways of thinking or reacting. But what happens if you shut the default mode network down for a little while? Well, this is probably one of the most exciting developments of the entire story, and it explains why things like meditation and psychedelics can be so effective for treating mood disorders and addictions, and can also help with, well, the overall betterment of well people. If we shut down this air traffic controller for a little while, it frees the brain up to process information differently for a few hours. In a less rigid way, the ego identification process in the brain goes quiet, allowing us to step outside of ourselves for a while and enter a kind of witness mode. Instead of experiencing ourselves as being an actor on the stage of our lives, we step off the stage for a while and realize we can view ourselves impassively from a distance. We realize that we're more than just puppets on the stage with someone else directing the script. We can direct the play ourselves. There's a ton of material that's been written about this, and the most accessible of it is in the new book by science writer Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind. I can't recommend this book highly enough. In short, scientists have made the link between the default mode network and the obsessive thinking or those bad habits that we get trapped in over time. But these brain scans show that when an experienced meditator is doing a concentration practice, the blood flow and oxygen use in the region of the default mode network slows down for the duration of the session. And scanning the brain of someone during a psychedelic dosing session shows precisely the same thing. Blood flow and oxygen use in the default mode network shuts down for a while. Dr. Mendel Keelan, one of the Imperial College researchers who I mentioned in an earlier episode, described the effect of this. Think of the brain as though it's a hill covered with snow, he says. Through the course of our lives, information comes into our brains through our senses. We record these into a sort of internal roadmap that helps us understand this complex and ever-changing world. Each time information comes in, it's like a sled running down the hill, carving a pathway in the snow. As we get older, these trails become more and more fixed, so when new information comes in, it's almost impossible to send the sled down any other route than the one carved into the hillside. We get locked into how we receive information, process it, and respond, for better or worse. But with psychedelics, it's as if we temporarily flatten the snow on the hill, Keelan says so that the trails disappear, and suddenly the sled can move freely in any direction, exploring new landscapes and new pathways. If these brain scans are to be believed, then years of meditation practice appear to train the brain to regularly put fresh powder onto that snowy hill. A hearty dose of a psychedelic, like psilocybin, though, can do the same thing in just one dosing session. And the benefits don't just last through the course of the session. They seem to result in positive mood and behaviour changes that last long afterwards. The clinical trials using psilocybin-assisted therapy to manage depression, as well as alcohol and nicotine dependence, report positive benefits for months, sometimes years, after just two dosing sessions on the medicine. Many of the people who experience these deep-dose psychedelic sessions report finding relief from their depressive symptoms and feel the grip of compulsive addictive behaviours loosen. With normal antidepressants, you need to keep the chemical in your body constantly for it to work, and they're often described as numbing people to their pain, which isn't necessarily helpful. For many of the people who volunteered for the first clinical trials using psilocybin in this way, Just one or two dosing sessions seemed enough to shift perception, reboot the brain, and allow people to find a new perspective on their underlying pain. Meditation practices aren't new. Some older cultures have been working with meditation for hundreds of years. Other cultures have been working with psychedelics for as long. In the past 60 years or so, these two practices have been brought together in Western culture. This has mostly happened in the underground community, after early medical research into the benefits of psychedelics was shut down in the late 1960s because many modern governments decided these substances were too anti-establishment to be allowed to become mainstream. But now, a resurgence of medical research, along with advances in brain scan technology, are allowing scientists to confirm what the early psychonauts have long reported that the two practices work really well together to keep us on the emotional straight and narrow. Trauma and addiction specialist Dr. Gabor Mate says, Don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. Most of our adult behaviours are the fruit of experiences from our childhood, and adult addictions are the result of years of self-medication against childhood pain. The tyranny of small decisions that lead to addiction which I mentioned earlier, aren't necessarily a series of choices for some people. It's not that they're weak-willed and choose to jump into the bad decision. It's that their nervous systems are primed into such a constant state of hyperarousal that their fight-flight responses launch them into bad decisions before they've had a chance to resist. The stronger the habit becomes, the harder it is to do anything else. In one podcast... During an interview, Mate refers to Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl, who wrote in his book Man's Search for Meaning, that no matter what the circumstances, people can choose their response. There is a gap between the stimulation, that is the external event, and our response to it. In that gap is our freedom, he wrote, and in that freedom is our growth. Maté goes on to say that this is true and untrue at the same time. Because a traumatized brain loses the capacity to respond, and the gap between stimulation and reaction shrinks. For some people, reaction becomes automatic, like tapping your kneecap, your foot just shoots out reflexively. It's the nervous system that is primed to react, and it's not that easy to reprogram it into a less reactive state. What we need to do, he says, is to help people move from that reactive state to somewhere where there's a bit of a gap. Both meditation practice and psychedelics can help do that, and Mate recommends both. We all fall on a spectrum here. Some of us are less reactive for whatever reason and have more of a gap between trigger and response. Some of us are so conditioned by childhood trauma that our nervous system's reactive nature is well beyond our grasp. But increasingly, therapists are recognising that both meditation practice and psychedelics can help dial all of us into a space where there's a bit more of a gap. That's why they're recommending that psychedelics should be mainstreamed, not just for the treatment of sick people, but for the betterment of well people too. All of our nervous systems run way too hot in this modern, overstimulated world, and we could all do with dialing down the temperature a bit. There's a fantastic podcast that also explores this overlap between meditation practice and psychedelics, which I'd urge you to listen to. It's a conversation between Dr. Peter Attia and the American author Tim Ferriss, where the two of them talk about how things like meditation, exercise, different forms of breath work, can all work together to give us this meta-view of our lives, where we step off the stage and become the witnesses to our stories for a while. They talk about how these regular practices can allow the leopard to change her spots, and how psychedelics are a complement to that, not a replacement. I've put a link to these podcasts in the show notes on the website, psychonauts.co.za. Skip past the first 15 minutes of the Atia podcast, because that's not really relevant to the topic. The meat is in the last two-thirds of their conversation. The take-home message of the Atia podcast is this. If you're too nervous to try psychedelics, or if you have some other mental health condition that means you can't try this approach, or if you're too young or if you can't safely get your hands on them, you can still manage your emotional well-being using these other daily meditation practices. We all need to find our own regime of daily practice to take care of our emotional hygiene. What works for me is trying to be mindful through the course of the day, doing concentration meditation now and then. Specific breathing techniques also help. Avoiding regular alcohol is key, along with running in wild spaces these definitely dial my nervous system into a more settled state. I'm a real novice at this, but it's lovely to discover in my mid-40s that I can actually do something that might allow me to change some of those bad mental habits. But what does this have to do with Casper's octopus story? Stanislav Groff, one of the fathers of psychedelic-assisted therapy, said that psychedelics are for the mind what the microscope is for biology, or the telescope for astronomy. It allows us to see into the depths of our unconscious in a way that we can't do with the limits of our normal data receptors. Just as we need prosthetics of the eyes to see distant planets or minute bacteria, psychedelics can be like a prosthetic of the mind, allowing us a glimpse into the depths of ourselves. My failed book project was churning up all my old default thinking about my lack of self-worth. After years of therapy, I understand the origins of my stunted self-esteem. I've spoken about it ad nauseum, but I still haven't been able to pry myself free from the grip of that self-loathing. All those other daily flossing and brushing practices, like meditation and running, are ways to soften the gaze and allow the subconscious a chance to be seen. But it wasn't giving me the clarity I needed. I reckoned it was time for something more dramatic. It was time for a bit of root canal. We'd been planning it for a good few weeks. A group of about 12 of us got together at a friend's house late last January and spread ourselves out on the lawn across a scattering of mattresses and cushions and drank down our medicine as the day began to fade. We'd all settled on between two and three grams of dried psilocybe mushrooms. They were powdered, mixed into a brew of sweet black tea, and chased down with a square of homemade organic chocolate. There's often a lot of ritual surrounding this process. There was a fire burning in the fireplace, and a sober person pottering in the background to make sure we were safe through the night. Now, I should warn you that the world of psychonautic exploration is filled with people wanting to share their trip reports. While these are often deeply meaningful for the individual, they can be rather boring for everyone else, because these stories don't have the same emotional impact as for the person who actually experienced the trip. But the reason I'm sharing this one with you is to try and show you how psychedelic learning happens, and why it's like several years of therapy in one night. So bear with me. And I guess this is where I come clean with you and admit that in the course of researching this topic, I felt the need to cross the threshold and visit the other side, so I could report back firsthand what so many have been telling me from the underground psilocybin community. The effect came roaring in. Within 15 minutes, I felt as though someone was pinning me to the floor with their knee to my temple. My first instinct was to push back to resist this force and I felt panic, but then I let go. The storyline I'm about to tell you now isn't necessarily how things are in my life. Rather, it's a mirror showing me an amplified edition of how I view myself. Most of all, what happens in the story is something that's felt and experienced at a deeply emotional level rather than something that's just understood intellectually. It's not a scene unfolding in front of my eyes, but rather the sense that the story just is. I should also warn you, the language in the story is quite strong. It might sound a bit melodramatic, but stay with me, because it has a clear story arc and a profound ending. Also, bear in mind that I'm an atheist. Some of the language here may have religious connotations but I'm just using that as placeholder words because language is too limited to capture what's happening here. At first, there are the usual fractal patterns, like staring up at the gilded mosaic ceiling of an ancient cathedral or mosque. Every time a drop of music hits my ear, the metal-edged pattern ripples out and spins away in dazzling colors. It's mesmerizing and unfathomably beautiful. And then the hard work starts. I get the sense that I'm a toddler lying on the floor in the aisle of a supermarket, and I've been throwing my toys out the cot in a right royal hissy fit. Standing over me, hands on her hips, is a wise old motherly type. She's looking down at me, bemused, but taking no nonsense. In that moment, I get a sense I'm being told off for a lifetime of temper tantrums. She's showing me that for years I've been lashing out at people, demanding that they love me, but hurling the full force of my pain at them all the time. I'm aware that Leonie, the adult me, is still that entitled, bratty little kid that's yelling at the world and demanding that it love her. It's the hardest rebuke I've ever received. And I realise that I wouldn't be able to hear this if it wasn't coming from a place of such profound love. I feel as though I am in the presence of something divine, of such exquisite beauty that I can't believe something this majestic is actually possible. I keep thanking her, this loving elderly soul, telling her how badly I needed someone to actually say this to me, to tell me how full of shit I've been, and that I'd never be able to hear it if it hadn't come from her in this way. She shows me the way I've been lashing out at my partner erupting in anger or jealousy or fear, all the time demanding that he love me, but refusing to accept that he actually does, and that he tells me this all the time in his own quiet way. Every cup of tea he makes for me, every meal he cooks, he's whispering that he loves me, only I don't hear it because I'm so busy yelling at him, demanding that he love me. I'm yelling at the world constantly, why don't you love this ugly, revolting thing that I am? I get a clear message. I need to break up with my partner because he deserves so much better than this. The right thing to do is to free him up so he can meet someone who actually deserves the fullness of who he is. I compare myself to others close to me and see how much they bring to the world, their gifts, their talents, their kindness. Compared with them, I feel as though I have nothing to give, nothing. All I do is inflict my pain and anger on the world by lashing out at everyone. I look back over all the broken relationships in my past and see one common denominator, me. I'm the problem. I'm the reason they all broke down. In the years that I've been lucky enough to have therapy, I've often tried to take responsibility for my part in the failed relationships in my life. But it's largely been an intellectual exercise. This time... It was visceral. I felt it in my body, in my gut. In my mind's eye, I'm suddenly reduced to a little clump of cells, just a few small, empty, clear cells, surrounded by an ugly, scabby crust. This is me, empty with nothing to give, just a revolting thing crusted with hardness. The music that's playing is magnificent. In the midst of this exquisite pain of accepting my true ugliness, a piece of violin music begins to play. I'm overwhelmed with the sense that this musician has created this one piece of sound for no reason other than to say to anyone who hears it, I love you. The same with the next song. The artist is saying, I love you. And with every subsequent song, I understand that each artist is using her own way to tell the world, I love you. When one song feels discordant, I get a clear message. No, be quiet and listen. This person is telling you in his own way, with his own dialect, that he loves you. Just hear that. More than anything, I feel it. There I am, this little clump of empty, useless, ugly souls with nothing to offer anyone in return, And yet everyone around me is telling me that they love me. A hard journey like this is a bit like watching a really good production of Samuel Beckett's play, Endgame. The story is almost too grueling to watch. The magically real limbo where the characters are trapped in an endless suffocating now. The exquisite restraint as the characters barely conceal their loathing for each other the white-knuckled tension that never quite spills into violence. But taxing as it is, you can't look away because you're mesmerized by the genius of the script and the wizardry of the actors. In the midst of this difficult lesson, but infused with the enveloping feeling of love, an awareness arrives, almost like stone tablets from on high. I can't change this. I can't fix this thing that I am. But I also can't keep inflicting myself on the world like this. There's only one thing to do. I must break up with my partner and end it. I might as well top myself. I sob and sob and sob, embodying the pain of what it will be like to lose my partner, the pain of knowing how much damage I've caused to others, the pain of knowing I can't change or fix myself. Then it's as if the adult version of me is standing over this sobbing shape, also with her hands on her hips, with a kind smile, and says, "Okay, kiddo, so now you know this, what are you going to do about it? And then Sinead O'Connor's The Healing Room starts to play. By this time I'm laughing, thinking, how on earth could the person who put the playlist together beforehand have known that in this moment I would need to hear these words? It's as if the song was written for this empty, jelly-like pile of useless cells. Me. I have a universe inside me where I go and go, and spirit guides me, where I can ask any question and get the answers if I listen. I have a healing room inside me. The loving healers there, they feed me. They make me happy with their laughter. They kiss and tell me I'm their daughter. I'm their daughter. Inside each one of these empty cells that is me, there's a universe of whatever I need so that I can give the world something in return. I realise now that what I need to do is learn how to love. But how? By now we're about two or three hours into the journey. It must be somewhere around midnight. The peak is behind me and I'm beginning an ethereal drifting back to earth. I'm sitting cross-legged next to the music system, out on the grass, with small LED electric candles burning all around me. That's when I feel something jumping onto my leg. I brush it off. It feels like, oh, it feels like a revolting, rubbery frog. Normally I adore frogs, but this one just grosses me out and I flick it away. And then I start to giggle, because it dawns on me that this is precisely what the lesson of the entire journey is about. Every day, things throw themselves at me and trigger these sorts of reactions where I lash out and try to flick the discomfort away. And every time this happens, it's an opportunity to learn how to respond. It's a chance to learn how to love. This is how I must learn to love. I sit there on the grass, beneath the vaulted cathedral of the midnight sky, dotted with stars. Each of my friends is a pillar holding up this garden temple around me. I can't think of a better place to learn such a hard lesson. I'm in awe of the beauty of it all. I'm enveloped with this love. There's a pile of crumpled, tear-sodden tissues on the grass in front of me, and I drop one of these over one of the electric candles. It transforms the light into something whimsical and delicate, like a glowing flower in the night. Even though I have nothing to give, I can still take my snotty tissues, the product of my pain and brokenness, and turn it into a small gift to others, a small something that is nevertheless beautiful. And so I crawl on my hands and knees from one candle to the next, putting little crumpled tissue lampshades over each one, creating a glowing flower garden on the floor of the temple. This entire journey was an exercise in one of the things I find most difficult, radical self-acceptance. The 1960s were an interesting time. Western philosophers were getting a taste of Eastern mysticism and Buddhist-style meditation practice was becoming quite the thing. Some of the more prominent thinkers were also dabbling in psychedelics and were already getting some clues into what today's neuroscience is now confirming with these brain scans that I mentioned earlier. That meditation practice and psychedelics appear to work on the brain in similar ways. They quieten the obsessing, ruminating mind. They shut down the ego center of the brain and allow us to connect with the world around us. They break locked-in patterns of habitual thinking and reboot the brain. Many of these psychonauts realized that the early years of experimenting with psychedelics had propelled them forward in terms of their quest for, I guess the best word is, enlightenment. And that after a while they didn't need these substances anymore that they could continue on their paths towards enlightenment and self-growth with day-to-day meditation and contemplative practice. Alan Watts was one of the philosophers who brought together Eastern thinking with psychedelic exploration. He famously said this, The psychedelic experience is only a glimpse of genuine mystical insight, but a glimpse which can be nurtured and deepened by the various ways of meditation In which drugs are no longer necessary or useful. If you get the message, hang up the phone. For psychedelic drugs are simply instruments like microscopes, telescopes, and telephones. The biologist doesn't sit with the eye permanently glued to the microscope, he goes away and works on what he's seen. After that particular mushroom trip, I realized I could hang up the phone. I got what I needed that night and for months afterwards knew precisely how to weave that into my day so I could at least try to brain train myself into a healthier way of existing in my skin. Psychedelics aren't a silver bullet to fix all the ills of the human condition, but they certainly can be a useful intervention, and the hard work often continues after the experience. This is what the medical people refer to as the post-dosing integration process, where you take the skills that you already have and use them to weave the wisdom and learning into your daily life. Since that mushroom journey, I find myself noticing these habitual thoughts that reflect my ingrained beliefs about my self-worth. That nasty little voice that tells me I'm ugly or worthless and have nothing of value to give the world. Worse still, it's the feeling that creeps in with those words where I want to claw my way out of my skin because I'm so reviled by the shell that I inhabit. I want to escape this feeling of being ugly and worthless. Now, instead of listening to the voice, I recognize it for what it is, and I say, ah, yes, you, you old chestnut. And then I try and do what the Buddhists suggest. I sit with the feeling of discomfort. And then I try a loving-kindness meditation where I bathe myself in goodwill. And I focus on the sweet cadence of my breath and marvel at the rhythm of it, this thing that keeps my body alive and my brain firing. And I try to do this until the self-loathing has harried off on its way. Look, I can't pretend that I always get it right. More often than not, I don't. In fact, this whole week I've been almost crippled by the recurring sense of uselessness. But it's liberating to know that I have a quick-release tool that I can use if I remember and that the more I practice, the better I'll get at it. The self-loathing is still there, it will always be, but I'm trying to smile at it in the hope that one day it might smile back. I still haven't managed to make that book project fly, but I haven't given up on it either. Maybe the timing just isn't right. More than anything, though, I don't feel like quite such a failure because of it. While the idea sits on the back burner, I've written a different book, and I've launched into this podcast, which somehow feels even more worthwhile. Most of all, I'm trying to find ways to be comfortable in my skin. As I record the story for you, there's a small orange toy octopus next to my computer. Its eight limbs are frozen in mid-gallop. It's a gift from my octopus-loving friend, Casper. It's small enough to fit in the palm of my hand. It doesn't move, It doesn't magic itself into invisibility with a flash of colour change. It can't screw the lid off a sealed jar, but it sits there in quiet repose, a daily reminder that sometimes I can't solve life's mysteries by staring them down or confronting them head on. It's a reminder that life isn't a problem to be solved and that I'm not a project to be fixed. It's a reminder to sit in quiet contemplation soften my gaze, and allow whatever mysteries are hiding beneath the surface to swim up when they feel safe to do so. The little eight-legged creature on my desk is a reminder that each day is a chance to do those little things that keep us on the emotional straight and narrow. As the Zen Buddhists say, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. the obligatory disclaimer once again. The author, that's me, Leonie Gibert, and the partners in the Psychonauts, we aren't endorsing the therapeutic or recreational use of psychedelics. This podcast is founded on the principle of harm reduction. Word is spreading about the potential benefits of psychedelics, but because they're illegal, it's driven them underground, where it's hard to monitor and safely regulate their use. This podcast aims to open up that conversation as well as put some evidence-based ideas out there about the risks associated with the unsupported therapeutic or recreational use of such substances. The kind of psychedelic experiences discussed in this series should only be done under the supervision of a skilled professional and in a safe environment, and people with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia should steer well clear. Please speak with an informed family doctor or psychiatrist to find out more. Oh, and don't go out foraging for wild mushrooms. No matter how good you think you are at mushroom identification, it's hard to tell the lethal ones from the safe ones. As the old saying goes, all fungi are edible, but some only once.